0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehudi Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is going to discuss a little bit of the history of Jewish first names, I don't know if it's sociology or history or culture, But a little bit about the development and trends of first names, first name giving in Jewish history. And this episode is sponsored by the Shapiro family in Los Angeles in honor of the birth of their son, Ben Sion Zev. Ben Sion Zev is lovingly called Benny Shapiro, and it's not to be confused with Ben, for this episode is not sponsored by the Daily Wire. Apropos for Pesach, Pesach is just around the corner. And on Pesach, one of the things we celebrate is Laishinu es that the Jewish people did not change their names. Exactly what that means is up for debate, but there is definitely something about the fact that they attached importance to their Jewish name. In fact, there's an incredibly historic um, halachic responsa, a of over Meisha Feinstein on the topic. It's towards the beginning of Helik Ches in Igris Mesha. But there's several chuvas of his actually dispersed throughout all the different volumes of Igress Meisha, just the main one is this one. I think it's the I think it's Simon Yud in in Ch'ilek Ches. And he has but he has several other chuvas on the topic. And in, in other words, it was something that he returned to, a theme that he returned to um quite often. And Hermesha Feinstein covers um Aramaic names, um non-Jewish names, Jewish names, Americanized names. And then he speaks about the idea of this Pesach idea that I just mentioned of Leishinu as and he says that it's that it's Jewish culture. He has a very creative interpretation. He says that before the Jews received the Torah, so what gives them their identity? What what creates Jewish identity? And he says, well, Jewish culture does. And there are three feet three aspects of Jewish culture specifically, and that's their names, their language, and their fashion, their attire. And that's why they needed those three things to preserve their Jewish identity. However, he says, after the receiving of the Torah, then what preserves Jewish identity is the Torah itself, and following its precepts, and doing the mitzvahs, and the study of Torah, and following the Torah. And therefore, if you have the Torah, then you don't need Jewish culture that much. It definitely is not as important as it was before that. So the idea of having a Jewish name and a Jewish language and uh, and uh, and Jewish fashion is much less important uh, after the receiving of the Torah than before. And therefore, he says he's not recommending everyone take non-Jewish <laughs> names, but he says it's it seems to be okay. And then he goes. He, Ramesh is almost like a historian in this. Truly, you got to see it. He's, he has this fascinating. Survey of thousands of years of Jewish history of where he cites many great Torah leaders throughout the generations who had non-Jewish names. Uh, Latin names, Greek names. In, in, the, in the Chazal you have uh, Aramaic names, um, you know, Huna, of Papa, Rava, Abai, and then you had all these Greek names, Sumchus and Antignus and Tidus uh, and all these Latin names, Christian names. Arabic, he says, Vidal, and, and all these types of rabbis who had these Arabic or Christian or non-Jewish names. Um, he also cites the sources for several names which are common, bear and other names. He also goes into the custom of of having two names, double names, right? Uh, two names, you know, we, we, which is a fairly, relatively new thing. Maybe I'll get into that also. Having two names or even three names, it's really a historic tshuva, Meisha Feinstein, who needs Jewish history sound bites when you have Rabmisha? So you can definitely see a lot on the topic over there. Um, going from Rabmisha Feinstein to the opposite end of the spectrum, um, one place where I got very into the idea of studying the history of first names was when I read my, my actually, it's my favorite non history book. Uh, 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 a series of books, actually, Freakonomics by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. And now I avidly listen to their podcast as well. So they 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 have this, uh, in one of their books, I don't remember which one, they had an entire chapter on on the role of parents in giving first names to their children and what type of first names they give and does it influence the child and what does it mean about the socioeconomic background of the parents and do they give unique names? Do names follow trends? They have this incredible database of California name giving over forty years or something, and they do this amazing data analysis of statistical data analysis of name giving and, and how names change and the top ten names and they relate it to to different socioeconomic strata and they find that that people copy uh, name givings. It goes down the economic scale. In other words, the very wealthy are choosing names creatively and then the um, you know the middle class are copying the upper class and the lower class are copying the the uh, the middle class and and ga- names go through these cycles um, going through the economic system it's a fascinating study it's absolutely mind-blowing um, so that that got me thinking about Jewish names also but there's so many topics to explore. When it comes to Jewish first names, and that is, do we use, you know, most for the most part, we're using biblical names, uh, names that appear in the Torah and Tanakh, and some of those names end up being popular, and some of them being very not popular. If you even look at like the Shvatim, the twelve Shvatim, some are very very popular, some are rare, and some are you know sometimes used but not as much. There's much more um, Yehudas. Like me, uh, then uh, I don't know Gud, or something like that. Even though that's, it, there's plenty of people named all, you know, all of them, all the different names. Um, so you, you you wonder how that that happens. There's more obscure names of Tanakh, which are rarely used, and it depends on which communities, of course, right? You have in the yemenite communities they don't even use tanakh names they're named uh, yahya or so other very um, arabic sounding names or whatever variant of language it is in the arabian peninsula in the, in yemen and and therefore they don't have a, they don't use so much biblical names then there's the idea of naming for animals um, which which is already from the time of tanakh and becomes more common in the modern era, naming for different animals, quite a few different animals. Or angels, Gavriel, michael it's also relatively new, last several centuries. Um, There's descriptive names, there's Jewish names in other languages, in other words, translations of Jewish names, just it's in another language. And then there's outright non-Jewish names that Jews use, there's there's names that go out of use but then they're revived. There's a revival of some of these old ones, and then there's completely new ones. And then like I said, there's the idea of having two names or even three names. And then of course a more of a sociological study would be to see how um taking the common Eastern European names and seeing how they they play out in American and Israeli society. The the ones in America become more Americanized, and the ones in Israel become more Hebraicized. Um, how about naming after someone, which is very, very common? Name after a grandparent, a great-grandparent, uh, sometimes a, a relative that had no children, any descendants, so they name after that, an uncle or an aunt or something like that, or naming after a great person, there's male names and there's female names and then there's gender neutral names, um, which is which is also another interesting study. Um, one, of, one of my children, uh, my boy, is named Simcha after his great grandfather, and uh, he Simcha is the, his great grandfather was a male, and my son is a male, and but I know my next door neighbor has a daughter named Simcha. So, right here. So, the, the, there you go. You have a gender-neutral name. So, I guess in today's uh, environment, today's uh, politically correct climate, maybe it's best to name your kid a gender-neutral name. This way they, they have that latitude when they grow up, you know, to make more choices. I'm just kidding around. Don't worry. So, there's also names that signify something. A thanks, or a blessing, or a prayer, or some sort of event, or healing, uh, Chaim, uh, Chizkiyahu, because Chizkiyahu Melech, even though it's a biblical name, but it's very often used for healing because Chizkiyahu Melech got better from his illness after he spoke to the Navi Yeshaya. In fact, on my tours of Aramanuchis, uh, we all, always stop by the Mir Rosh Hashiva section and Rebleza Yudel Finkel, the great Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, um, he On his Matzeva, it says, Reb Chizkiyahu Eliezer Yehuda Finkel. Everyone always asks, where did the name Chizkiyahu come from? So actually, in his last illness, shortly before he passed away, they added the name Chizkiyahu. Probably the most common phenomenon is naming for an ancestor. In the early Ashkenaz, you had the Cloinimus family of Italy. And later on in medieval Ashkenaz, uh, certain branches of the family migrated from northern Italy to um, Germany to Ashkenaz in the uh, in the uh, early days of of, of, uh, of Ashkenaz, and they're perfect, they're an illustrious family, a very great uh, family of scholars. Um, leaders, and they're a perfect illustration as how ancient and widespread this was, because if you trace three, four hundred years of this kleidimus family, the same names appear again and again and again. Everyone's named for their grandfather. Everyone is named, uh, which wasn't always the case, right? You don't have that that common in Tanakh itself or in in the uh, times of Chazal. But yet, by the time the Middle Ages came along, this came to be very, very widespread, very, very common practice. Many families continued their specific names of those families, those common names, for centuries, um, especially in prominent rabbinic families, but even in regular ones. And there are literally endless illustrations of this, both male and female, and and um, and there's sometimes there's variations of the name they'll change it slightly they'll translate to Yiddish or or it's, they'll have a different way of pronouncing it or or they have a different variation of it or things like that but it continues and and proudly continues down the line sometimes you'll find in in communities today. People who are carrying a name from an ancestor that the original one was literally three, four, five, six hundred years before, and it's still continuing in the twenty first century across continents and holocausts and and whatnot, and still people are proudly carrying their name of their ancestors, which is really an incredible phenomenon uh, of the Jewish people and their connection to history. Now, in in the same thing, right on on the on the same topic of naming for ancestors, so here we come directly into the idea of double and triple names. And I was told recently it was almost unheard of to give double names. Um, To give two names, in other words, or three names. And especially in like old Yeki, old Ashkenaz communities or Sephardic communities, um, it was very rare. You did have people that did it. Already in the 1700s, you have someone like the Chida, one of the greatest uh, Torah scholars in the modern era, And his name was... Rebbe Chaim David Azulai. So that's Chaim Yosef David. That's three names. Um, I didn't. I didn't. Not doing this this episode on the chidus. So I didn't get a chance to double check if Chaim was added because he was sick, or maybe Yosef Chaim was added because he was sick. I know that Rebbe Chaim Zunenfeld. So he was originally Rebbe Chaim Zunnenfeld, and they added the Yosef when he was sick because Yosef Chaim it should add years of life. And maybe his uh, maybe the chidus also. I don't. I didn't get a chance to check. Maybe his name was only David originally. But you did have it in, in, in uh, occasionally in the Sephardic communities. But really it was rare. In the Sephardic communities, the Yaki communities, you didn't have it. It was also rather uncommon in Litvish communities. Although you, it wasn't unheard of, right? The Chazanish was of Yeshaya, um And others, there's Rav Chaim Oizer Um But there, it was the Chavetz Chaim, Rav Yisrael Meir. But it was it was rather uncommon. Um, it was very common in Polish communities, in Hungarian communities. It definitely existed for centuries. We know of double names from at least medieval times. I just mentioned the uh, the the chida, but if we go into Poland um, or Central Europe in the late 1500s, the Tysiusyantif was born. Central Europe, in Prague, I think, um, and his name was. Uh, Rab Gershon Yomtiv Lipman, um, and maybe one or two other names. Um, now I'm going to talk about Yomtiv and Lipman also. That's an interesting combination, which is quite a recurring name. But he was that's, that goes together with Yumtiv and Lipman. That's that's a different story. That's a kinui. It's kind of like a nickname. But the the he's Gershon. He's Gershon Yumtiv. So there's definitely two names there. So it did exist, and you have other examples of it. There's Many illustrations of it. Most likely, what it seems, that it became more common because of family feuds. Um, In other words, there's a fight between the, a dispute, God forbid a fight, a dispute between two sides of the family. The maternal grandparents want it to be named for their side, and the paternal grandparents want it to be named for that side. And there's a need to name for more than one person or grandparent just to keep peace in the family. So it ends up being a double name. Another reason was there was someone named a regular name, you know, let's say after a grandparent, for instance. Plus, they added a segula name for life, for health. Um, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to have like a. There, you know, there's a complicated birth or a complicated pregnancy, so they wanted to add a name for health or for life, but they also wanted a name after a grandparent, so they combined the two, so it became a combined name, and then therefore it continues on for generations. Another factor might be a regular name plus a, like, nickname, or kinui, or, or you know, just an extra name, such as Shlema Zalman. Zalman is simply a non-Jewish name, or it's a translation of the Jewish name I should say it's not a non-jewish name um, it's a translation of the Jewish name Solomon Solomon is the name in in German and in other European languages so it's it's Solomon um, so that's it, it so become it sounds like it's two names it's not really two names it's one name just what is a translation and there's very many many more examples of that it's very important to name in general to name a child with a name which ends in a vowel. Why is that important? Um, because parents throughout history need to have the need to yell for their children. Now, if you yell for a child, and, and their name ends in a vowel, it's much easier because it carries further. Uh, um, with a let's say an ah uh, at the end, you know, ah, uh, it, it carries. If it ends in a consonant, then it kind of ends abruptly and doesn't carry well. And if you want to yell to the other side of the park or down the block. To call your kid for dinner, then you need to have uh, their name end in a vowel. So that's historically was was always a concern. Also, now there's an interesting uh, German Jewish Yeki custom which existed for centuries um, of giving two names: a Jewish name at the bris or whenever they name the the the, Jew, the, the, the girl, uh, and and that's a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. And then they would have a Chayal name; they called it. I guess they called it a Chayal name um, at a separate ceremony. It was actually a ceremony. They did; it was a whole event. You give them; you bestow this special German name on the child, which they use for everything else. In other words, they made it very official, very ceremonial. The Hebrew name was only used for an Aliyah, for you know, Jewish ceremonies. Everything else, they used their German, non-Jewish name for. In fact, my father-in-law, who comes from a very prominent Yecky family from Frankfurt, he related to me that his uncle's name, one of his uncle's names, he had about 150 uncles, but he, one of his uncle's names was Wilhelm. And who's Wilhelm named for? This uncle was, of course, a Frankfurt Yecky of the community of Rav Shamsch Fall Hirsch, very, very religious, very, very from. And yet, who is Wilhelm named for? Named for the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Why? Because he was the seventh child, and it was the custom in Germany that the seventh child you name for the Kaiser. So this is the Kaiser I just want to remind you who this Kaiser was. This is the Kaiser who started World War One. He was a cruel tyrant, an anti-Semite. His cousin, the King of England, after World War One, called him the greatest criminal on earth. That one, the one who's responsible for millions of deaths during World War One, in fact the uh, if you didn't know enough about how how awful that war was, the recent Netflix uh, remake of All is Quiet on the Western Front is an excellent reminder of how terrible it was in the trenches there on the Western Front. So that Kaiser, the Yekis adored him so much and even named their kids for him because that was the custom. So you didn't just give any German non-Jewish name. You can actually name him for the Kaiser. Uh, Jewish immigrants coming to the United States very quickly Americanized their first names. Um, they, so they, they either Americanized their Jewish name into an American name, or they chose out of a hat uh, an American name. Um, they also did their last names. That's a different story. It may have been an actual need or a perceived need. Uh, so it's unclear in each situation what they did it because they perceived that they should. It's the appropriate thing to do or because at Ellis Island it was demanded. Uh, regardless, it was quite widespread. It was pretty much universal. Um, the problem was that Jews consistently chose specific names. Um, so they came to be kind of like Jewish American names. If you were a guy named Oving uh, in New York you were not Italian or Irish, you were definitely Jewish. So Oyving became a Jewish name. So it didn't help that you changed your name from Yankel to er- Oyving because because uh, you were just as Jewish. On the other side of the Atlantic, Israelis Hebraicized Yiddish names. And there were hundreds of Yiddish names that became Hebraicized over the years. In the early years, it was primarily secular Ashkenazi Israelis during the second, third, and fourth Aliyot who came here in the pre-state era, and they quickly Hebraicized their names. There was also a trend of Hebraicizing last names, but again, that's a different history. Then you had in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, the Sephardic Jews who had French first names, for the most part, the ones who came from Morocco, Algeria, and other countries, they had French first names, or Arabic first names, and from, they came from Iraq or Taman or, or other countries. And they would change those French and Arabic names, Hebraicize them to Hebrew. The third stage is something, again, it's more sociology than history. We're witnessing in front of our eyes, in our own communities today, uh, religious ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews are doing the same exact thing. They're changing Yiddish names. Um, Yiddish names are completely disappearing from the landscape, and they're given a Hebrew equivalent. And Hebrew names are becoming much more common and uh, prevalent in the Haredi community. So we're witnessing a third Stage of Hebraicizing first names in front of our eyes. Last names is a whole other story. I actually have researched last names more, Jewish last names more, and it's quite interesting. I'll have to devote another episode to surnames. That's a great history, um, possibly even more interesting. But another facet to examine in first names is to examine the differences between Sephardic and Ashkenazi first names and even subdivisions within that, within those communities. What I mean is There are lots of different factors in local differences. In other words, the the naming customs, such as the Sephardic custom of naming for living family members. You'll have much more common names, because they're going to name after someone living. So it could be named from father to son, father to son, where in Ashkenazi families it would be grandfather, grandson, or even great-grandfather to great-grandson. Another difference would be the influence of local language and pronunciation. So Old Sephardic names in the pre-Spanish expulsion era would have very, very Spanish names. Later on, there would be an influence of Arabic, um, whereas in 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 um, in uh, in, uh, in in Europe, in in uh, in Ashkenazi Europe, there would be a much more of an influence of German and later Slavic uh, names and language on the Jewish ones. And then, of course, the way they would use non-Jewish or translations of Jewish ones into non-Jewish languages, into general languages, excuse me, um, that would become a major difference in how names were. Even the same name origin, I don't know, Shlomo or Yaakov or something like that, would come out very, very different depending on where a person lived over the centuries. There's also what, along the same lines, is also the question of what defines a Jewish name in the first place. What's an inherently non-Jewish name and what's an inherently Jewish name? And this gets very confusing with biblical names, such as Sarah. Is, if I said it as Sarah and not Sarah, does that make it a non-Jewish name? I mean, it's the same name, the same thing with David and David. It's a, it's a, it's a very Jewish name. It's a biblical Jewish name. And yet, general society, and Western society for sure, uses these names. And there's other examples as well. Um, so what makes it Jewish or non-Jewish? What about translation of names into other languages? Like I said before, with Shlomo Zalman, is Zalman a non-Jewish name because it's translation into a general language, or is it a Jewish name because it's trans- it's a translation of Shlomo? It's it's Solomon. It's a Jewish name. Um, it's just in the vernacular. Uh, so it also it's similar to what we discussed once upon a time in Jewish music. What makes something inherently Jewish or non-Jewish music? There's the influence of the Spanish diaspora, following the expulsion, the Alhambra Decree in 1492, and then later in Portugal in 1497, so there's this Spanish Jewish diaspora, and then these Spanish Jews, Sephardic Jews, they end up everywhere, and their naming also has a cultural impact on many communities. I have heard, this is something I've heard, but I could not verify in time for the release of this episode, so I'm not 100% sure this is true, but I need to verify it. Just want to be upfront and clear about that. That although animal names were used by Jews, been in use since biblical times. In the, in the Tanakh, we have Devora, Tzippora, Kalev. We have many, many animal names in Tanakh. People named for animals. But they became much more common due to Sephardic influence in Spain. They used it more, and when after the Spanish expulsion, so that influenced many communities in North Africa, the Mediterranean basin, and in Europe, in Ashkenazi communities to start using more animal names, Dove and Zev and uh, and uh, uh, um, Tzvi and uh, um, uh, women, uh, you know girl, uh, female names as well. Um, same with angel names. It was a Sephardic influence. Uh, Spanish Jews, Sephardic Spanish Jews used Michal, Gabriel, and, and other angels' names. And, uh, and that influenced the rest of the world to start using them as well um, after the Spanish expulsion. So I've heard. There's easy ones. Uh, Schneur, which became a common name only a few hundred years ago, obviously comes from Senor. Uh, the, the, so that's definitely from the Spanish influence. Uh, I believe that Sprintz is the same thing. I think it comes from Senorita. I could be mistaken. In general, many Yiddish names like Sprintz are interesting, relatively new phenomena. The last few centuries, many of the Yiddish names that we use, both for male and female, although female is much more common, are translations from biblical or other Hebrew uh, names or even from non-Jewish ones. And now these Yiddish names are considered holy. And though somewhat archaic, uh, in some communities, are encouraged in traditional circles to continue the name tradition as if it's a holy name, even though it's a relatively new phenomenon. It was only used in the last few hundred years um, as translations from Biblical or other Hebrew names or even from non-Jewish ones. Another angle to examine is a boys' and girls' names. Uh, I think I mentioned that before. Or names that could be both. Um, I mentioned this example of Semcha before. Um, sometimes you have a gender crossover. In other words... The, the the you know that you have someone a girl named for a grandfather or a boy named for a grandmother i remember there was a rebbitson in the Mir Yeshiva named rebbitson rama finkel um, I think she's named for her grandfather Matcha epstein so it's like a kind of like an acronym rebb Matcha epstein i can double check that i'm not 100% sure um but there there is crossover so that that also and um, women Yiddish names um, are very common Froma, and so, which is comes from Romania and it means that it was from she was from or they hoped that she would be from or they came from a very from family. And then you have these like kind of like pompous names. You name a girl Shana, the pretty one or Yaffa and in, in, translate into Hebrew. Golda. Um, you have a, another animal name, Yaina, which people would name in y- the Yiddish would be Taba. So I have a very common Yiddish name, and by boys you'd have a Fryem Fishel. Why a Fryem Fishel? Because Yaakov Avinu said in his bracha to Yosef's children, "V'yidgul They should be like fish, Dugim fish. So a is fish or Shoshana, another girl's name, Reza. Um or Shoshana Bluma, flower, right? Or even Sepyra Bluma, because a bird goes to the flower to po- pollen. They, 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 you know, they, they, they po- Pollen? I don't know. They drink. They eat from the flower, whatever it is. Uh, Fagi, of course, is a too. Then you have a boy's name, Shraga Fivel. Fivel is a fire. Shraga is a flame. Although Shraga is not Hebrew; it's Aramaic. So you're translating an Aramaic name into Yiddish, and yet they're both considered Jewish names. You have Usher Anshel. Anshel is somehow related to Usher. I'm not exactly how it translates, though. You can add a name for long life, like we said before. Um Chaim for a male would be Chaya for a female, or Alter for a male, and Alta for a female. Um, and now for a male, you might have a three names, a Kaidish name, a Hebrew name, a Hebrew biblical or ancestor name. The second name they'll have is a Kinui name, kind of like a Yiddish name. Nickname for daily life, for commercial life, for their social life. And then you have a non-Jewish name for dealing with government uh, officials or documents, non-Jewish business dealings. But the Kaidish name, that Hebrew name, was only used for aliyahs and the like. So very often, a female who did not get an aliyah um, would never even be given a Kaidish name. And that was very common in many, many communities. She'd only have the Yiddish name or maybe even only a non-Jewish name altogether. Now I just want to emphasize that everything I'm talking about is cultural history or social history. This is not halacha, this is not minig, this is not telling you what to do or not to do, what's permitted or what's forbidden. I want to be very clear about that. If you want to know what should be done or shouldn't be done, go ask your rabbi, not me. I'm just describing a cultural or social history here. I want to use a couple of more names as examples, even though we're running out of time. Um, one is Ben Siyon. Where does the name Ben Siyon come from? We know that there's a thing called Siyon. Um, and the words Ben appear in Tanakh, um, but not as a name of someone. There is a source in Chazal, uh, the, the Ben Si'in family they were called, Mishpachas Ben tziyayin. Um And, and so there, there's a name Siain or Zion, and then there's Ben tziyayin. And it's definitely a connection to the land, In more recent times a connection to Jewish nationalism. Um, definitely, as a result of the latter, in other words, Jewish nationalism, it's become more common in the last 150 years. Um, the Chida says again, he's in the 1700s, and he says that uh, that I saw the Maram Ben Chaviv wrote that I never heard of a name Ben Zion. I never heard someone called Ben Zion, but um, there was someone Ben Tziyayn, there was there was someone named Zion just not Ben And the Chidah says, what are you talking about? There was someone, there was one of the rabbis in Venice uh, named Ben Sarfati. So you see that there's a dispute about where the name comes from already in the 1700s and even earlier. Um, in our times, you have Ben and Shankar on one hand, the Majetz Hasan, On the other hand, you have Ben Netanyahu, the father of the prime minister, who was a historian. Um, so, and that definitely had to do with the fact that he came from a Zionist family. Said, you know, Jewish nationalism the Chidon, in another place and also the Pelayites also both cite an old sgula that if one has had children who tragically passed away young then one should name their next child Ben Chai I'm not sure about this sgula or its source But it's clear one thing, that in the 1700s, when the Peli and the Chidah lived, Ben Sien was already a somewhat known and common name. And if they're citing an earlier source for this gula, that means it goes back even earlier. So the name Ben Sien definitely is around for centuries. Uh, We mentioned animal names. So one animal name is Zev. Uh, Zev, um, which is Wolf in Yiddish. Um, The the name appears, appears in Tanakh, I'm not sure if Jew or not Jew, um, but it, the, the word appears in Tanakh, the name appears in Tanakh. It definitely was made more common in recent centuries with animal names in general becoming more common. Now, very often it goes together with the Yiddish names such as Wolf or Wolf or Velvel, obviously, which is Little Wolf. Now, today you have a famous journalist named Wolf Blitzer. His parents were Polish Jews who were Holocaust survivors, and he's named for his grandfather. Now, he happens to be fluent in Hebrew, um, he lived in Israel for a time, and he wrote um, a column for the Israeli newspaper Yudiot Achronot for a time, and he used a pen name, Zev Barak, um, which is an approximate translation of Wolf Blitzer. Now, getting back to Zev, what's interesting about Zev is it's a common combination with Binyamin. In other words, there have been many people throughout history who are Binyamin Zev. Why is that? Again, it's obvious, because Yaakov Avinu's blessing to him in Parashas Vayechi, that he's compared to a wolf, Binyamin Zev Yitrof. So Binyamin Zev becomes a name, it's a name association. So Binyamin might be the, the official name for Aliyahs, but Wolf becomes the nickname, or Kinui for daily life. And then it evolves into Zev. In other words, it was Binyamin Wolf, and then later on, in more modern times, it becomes Binyamin Zev. And you have that with Naftali Hersh, and some of the other Shvatim, that there's a name association based on the brachis that Yaakov Avinu gives. Although I've yet to hear of someone named Dan Nachash. I never heard of that name yet, but maybe I'm wrong. Another name we have is Lipa. Where does Lipa come from? Um, Lipa is a a name that, that exists today. So it either comes from Liba, which means beloved in German or Yiddish, and similar to the girl's, the female name Ahuva, or possibly to name of a certain type of beautiful tree in some European languages, either way, like many other names, it's common in name combinations um, and for centuries. Um, some Um You know, similar to what's also another common name, Shmuel Zanvil. What's Shmuel Zanvil? Zanvil is a kinui, a nickname of Shmuel in some European languages, in German and other languages, because that's how non-Jews in some European countries refer to Shmuel. So it became Shmuel Zanvil for the non-Jewish name. Now, of course, it's considered a Jewish name. So Lipa as well. Lipa or Lipman. Lipa is just short for Lipman. It was often together with Yemtev, Yemtev Lipman or Yemtev Lipa. Also, Chananya Lipa, or altogether, Chananya Yemtiv Lipa, not only on the Shmuel Kunda magical Yamka in real life as well. The Satmarov's father, the Kedush's Yemtiv, was named Reb Chananya Yemtev Lipa title bound. I'm not sure if he had a magical Yamka or not, but either way, his father, the Yetev Lev of Siget, named him as such because he was born on Shavuos, so it's Yemtiv And Lipa also always was considered a kinui for Yemtiv. Or for Hanania for centuries, so it went all together. I mentioned the Taisis Yamtif earlier, who lived in, he was born in the 1500s in Central Europe, and his name was Yamtif Lipman. Um, so you 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 have that. I'm not sure what the connection is from Lipman to Yamtif or to Hanania, but it definitely always went together with it. So that was just a few examples. This was a little bit about. Uh, Jewish first names. This is Yehudah with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at com For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.